Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. The first time I ever met Tucker when I was 22, our first conversation was literally, let me tell you about the time that your high school headmaster offended me back when we were both in high school. And he was just so adamant about telling me how much he hated this guy. And I thought it was really funny. But like every time I've talked to Tucker, there's always this sense of like, let me tell you about someone I really, really, really hate. And that sense of resentment, I think, drives a lot of what he does. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. I'm John Favreau. I'm Max Fisher. And you just heard from today's guest, Tina Wen, Puck News' national correspondent covering the MAGA movement. Uh, so we've talked a lot here about online radicalization and how the internet has helped transform the conservative movement and media ecosystem into a clown show. That runs the gamut from uh, trollish reactionaries to neo-Nazis. There's a lot of money in it. Have we considered launching a radicalization MAGA show? That's, I'm keeping that idea on the shelf. <laughs> uh, so Tina was there when it all started. Uh, she uh, was a libertarian from Boston who kicked off her career in the slogs of right-wing media and escaped a few years before Trump arrived on the scene. But she worked with and was mentored by some of the very worst characters from that <laughs> world, most notably Tucker Carlson. Uh, these days, him. Tina has turned on her former colleagues and is trying to help the rest of us understand what makes these people tick. Her new book, The MAGA Diaries, is more of a uh, coming-of-age memoir that tells the inside story of how the conservative movement recruits and nurtures young talent, how the media ecosystem evolved, and why its stars keep becoming more trollish and extreme. I talked to her about all of that and uh, talked to her about where she sees things headed and, of course, what she thinks about Tucker. Tina, congratulations on being a recovering MAGA right-winger. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> but first, this week, uh, OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, unveiled a new AI model. Oh, yeah. It's really something to see. They can turn text into video. The model is named Sora, and it takes a simple text prompt like, for example, drone video of waves crashing against the coast and turns it into an extremely realistic video up mm -hmm. to a minute long. Uh, some of the examples on their website include Pixar-inspired 3D animations, realistic scenes with convincingly lifelike people on the streets of Tokyo, inventive visuals like pirate ships battling in a cup of coffee, and, quote, historical footage of California during the gold rush. Uh, at the moment, the model is only available to a team of testers who are assessing the, quote, harms and risks of the model. But if you've seen any of these videos, the harms, risks, and opportunities become pretty clear pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. What would you think? So 
I mean, it's impressive. It looks really cool. They show you uh, in their demonstration of it, they show you the prompts. The prompts are one or two sentences written in plain English. The videos look really sleek, glossy, very passable for what they are trying to be. Like there was one that was a like fake movie trailer and Mm -hmm. it looks like a fake movie trailer. There's still an element to all of them of like unreality. And they all look like the parody of a thing that they're trying to be. Like they look like the SNL parody skit version of it Mm -hmm. rather than like actually passing as the real thing. But I think there are kind of two things that strike me about both Sora in particular and this kind of like moment that we are in generally with AI. The first, and like, I know everybody told us it's going to happen, but it is still blowing my mind how quickly it's moving. Mm -hmm. Like it has not been that long. And these look way better than any of the AI videos we saw a couple of months ago. Way better. Um, The second is just how different it is from what we either feared or hoped Mm. it was going to be. Um, It's not producing Hollywood films on demand. Um, It's not an artificial intelligence that, sorry, Ezra Klein, you are going to fall in love with or will fall in love with you. Uh, It's not Skynet, but it is really, really good at this very specific thing of producing incredibly good looking, but not quite like very uncanny valley videos. Yes. I mean, this is the f- my first time experiencing artificial intelligence where I didn't just think, oh, we're fucked or <laughs> wow, this is impressive or mm-hmm. yeah, they haven't totally nailed it yet. I thought it's kind of all those things. Sorry. But I, what I really thought was, holy shit, we actually have no idea mm-hmm. how much this is going to transform life as we know it. Yeah. And because if, if we get to the point where you can literally watch a video of whatever your mind can describe... Mm-hmm. The implications for media, entertainment, film, television, content creators, influencers, education, tourism, enormous. And so imagine a prompt that's like, you know, show me someone summarizing the, uh, the, top, the top political news of the day uh, with all the relevant video clips and, uh, and make sure to throw in the latest polls because I'm a poll junkie. <laughs> like, will that video be as good as network news or CNN or MSNBC? Maybe not. But... But two takeaways from that answer, maybe not. One, does it really need to be as good to displace a lot of this industry that is dying? Mm. And two, it, it makes me think that if if knowledge was the currency of the information economy, creativity is going to be the currency of the artificial mm-hmm. intelligence economy. Because, again, you're not going – I don't think so far – that AI is going to be able to replicate human imagination and and, and creativity. And mm-hmm. like you said, it's sort of some of these videos are like parodies of right. stuff that's much more creative and interesting. But that's still, it doesn't need to do that to still displace and, and disrupt like a lot of society. I actually, I'm glad that you brought up the kind of hypothetical example of could you use an AI prompt to come up with like a video summarizing the day's news? Because I think that is exactly the kind of thing where AI will never displace the human-made version. Mm Because you're right, it would be able to create a pretty passable version of that. But they're always going to be free to access like YouTube videos or podcasts that are going to do the same thing that are going to be, I think, way better Not because AI can't do a lot of glossy production quality. It can, but it's never going to write jokes that are as good. It's never going to give you analysis that you will trust as much. It will never give you the sense of having a, like, relationship and, like, an emotional connection with the person who is reading the news to you or as a podcast or you like because it's not—and it doesn't feel like a real person. 
but we like that. <laughs> Does everyone like that? I think a lot of people do. <laughs> I think that that is, if you look at the trends in media over the last 20 years, I think people like having, and I've always liked having a connection with, and this goes back to the 70s, people like having a newscaster who's a familiar face and voice that they trust. Yeah. And that's meaningful to you. You like- well, Back then, a lot of those newscasters didn't really have- personalities or at least personalities <laughs> that they showed during the newscast you know well, but that is to say that like people now show even more personality yeah. and that's like been one of the big changes going to like youtube and podcasts is there's like more of a connection with the creators there's more a sense that like this is something that speaks to me or my identity or who i am and i think ai is never going to be able to replace that um i do think the things that it will replace and seeing this i think it will replace very soon are advertising, things where it doesn't need to have that sense of human realness to it, where it can be uncanny valley, it can be kind of cheap. And also you're an advertising agency, you're looking to cut costs anyway. And in the entertainment industry and in film and television, like a lot of production, a lot yeah. of production costs, yeah. a lot of like shoots, a lot of people who are behind the scenes, mm -hmm. right? Like I actually, I mean, we focus on the, the writer's strike, but I actually think that Again, creativity, writers, and sort of actors' interpretation of, right. of what of what writers do and directors, right? Like, I do think they're going to be better off than a lot of the other people who work in that industry who do some of the more technical production stuff. So a couple of months ago, someone trained one of the uh, big image AI makers to create um, fake production stills from fake Wes Anderson movies. You know, mm -hmm. Wes Anderson, he did... Um, Rushmore and Royal Tannenbaums and all that. And it has a very distinctive look. Mm -hmm. And all of these stills, superficially, they did really look like Wes Anderson movies. And it was very, they, like, the color palette was perfect and the facial expressions and the composition and it was all just right. But that really just served to highlight how much when you look at it, you feel nothing. And there's a lifelessness to it. And also any version that Wes Anderson's actual production team would come up with would be a thousand times better because it would be original and inventive and interesting. So that to me really highlighted that the kind of thing it can do is like, um, if you were Wes Anderson's production team and you want to come up with a bunch of stills to use internally mm. or be like, let's storyboard this scene. AI is great for that. If you want to make a movie, it's going to be terrible for that because it's going to have that flatness, that uncanny valley, that lifelessness. So I think that where you are going to see a lot of AI-created art, I think it's not going to be on the big screen. I think you're not going to see a mainstream TV series on ABC or NBC that is going to be built out of AI because it's just going to have that uncanny valley weirdness. I think where you're going to see it is places where the people who are commissioning the work don't care mm. that it has that. Un if you're making ads, if you're doing... Um, an example that Tyler Cohen arrived at, which is the thing that I kept thinking about when I was seeing these models, was corporate HR training videos. Like anything that involves like stock art, stock yeah. footage, stock video, like the AI version that you can have like that is going to look better than the cheap stock art and be free to use. Or like um, I think something you're going to see a lot of is I think bands that are maybe just starting out and can't afford mm. to hire an entire team to make a music video – they're going to make one with AI. Mm. And in some ways, that's exciting because it means that high-quality video production is suddenly going to be available to a huge number of people. In some ways, it's scary because making music videos is how a lot of great directors got their start. Yeah. And that's going to be a lot of people who are working at the kind of margins of these industries, who are shooting the corporate training videos, who are shooting the like cheap music videos, I think are going to be threatened by this. So did you read the New Yorker piece about this? Uh, I tried. <laughs> so Joshua Rothman wrote a New Yorker piece uh, that 
I probably needed a, a, a few more edibles to understand. Uh, <laughs> no, it was good. I was I being snarky. It was a great piece. It was a great piece, and but it was as someone who took cultural studies class in college, cool to see the ideas of Ludwig Wittgenstein applied for a general audience. Well, to give you a sense of what we're talking about, uh, here's the title: When AI can make a movie, what does video even mean? Uh, <laughs> but the point is, he 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 is it's a great piece. I highly recommend. <laughs> But he talks about the possibility of someday using Sora to create videos of moments with his daughter that he wasn't able to film while they happened. Mm -hmm. And that really, I was like, okay, will those videos right now mm -hmm. be the same as, the, first of all, I don't think that had, they have the capability right now, mm -hmm. but you could see where this is going. Mm -hmm. And if you're, basically his point is, if if what you can see in a video is only limited by your own imagination right. and by what your mind tells your hands to type right. yeah. <laughs> as a prompt, then the implications of that, I think we have not grasped at all. Yeah. I was reading this incredible story about how the music industry is starting to kind of uh, dance around using AI. And there was this really striking anecdote in it where Google demoed their AI for music for a bunch of like veteran music producers. And one of the things they did is they got this producer and they said, we trained this AI on music that you produced over the last like 30 or 40 years and give it a prompt and it will make something that will sound like something that you made. And he did it. And this producer gave these quotes to also to the New Yorker where he was like, it's incredible. It was like listening to my own work on yeah. its best day. And that, I think, speaks to both the power and limits of it. It can't create a new producer and a new producer's sound. But this producer was like, this is scary because it means anyone with this model can just do what I would do for free. But also, if I have exclusive access to it, that's really cool. And this is what like Joshua Rothman was saying about like if I train videos on, or if I train an AI on videos of my daughter, can it create more videos of my daughter? And this producer is saying like, if I can train it on my own work, can that help me? And is like, you know, someone who has produced a lot of writing and hates producing more but has to for work, the idea of training an AI on it to produce more is exciting. So I'm like, I, I think you're probably hearing me. I'm kind of coming around to like, there are some cool potential uses of this, but I think you're right that it's also very scary. And I think what's something that we are starting to see on the margins is nefarious uses of it. Like we talked about scammers. Mm. It's going to get way easier to produce at scale. Scam You're going to end up sending Selena Gomez that money. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to lay crusade. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I do. I, I, yeah, I, I've had this thought as I keep reading about more advancements in AI, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is that like, I'm increasingly of the mind that we are latching on to the current weaknesses of AI models mm -hmm. as a way to comfort ourselves that this is really isn't going to change life as we know it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, right. or we focus on the more apocalyptic predictions to be mm -hmm. like, okay, well that does, that seems far-fetched. It's not going to happen. But the, the, the apocalyptic predictions don't need to necessarily become true to right. still have this technology become extremely disruptive yeah. and and also and dangerous in a way that you know Sora on the website they're like well we are you know we're, we're going to make sure we have this trust and safety you know guardrails up and mm -hmm. it's not going to be able to uh know people's likenesses right so there's not going to be real people in the videos yeah, we'll see how long that lasts exactly yeah. and, and copyright we're following those laws right now so mm -hmm. it's not going to just it, it wouldn't be able to read you all the news of the day right because yeah. you have to license that from the news from the media companies mm -hmm. but like exactly how long is that going to last yeah well we're already starting to see and there was a round of this with taylor swift 
this problem of people training AI image generators on the likenesses of celebrities to create fake porn Mm -hmm. using their faces. And it's not hard to see how that could be extended into violations of privacy of everyday people, blackmail. Um, One of the things that I'd like I think is reassuring is that every story you read about this, they talk about the incredible amount of computing power Mm. that it takes to produce this. And that means that at least for now, the number of people who can create a model like this and use it, or the number of companies who create a model like this, it's like you can count it on one hand. Like it's three or four because it, it costs billions of dollars to get enough computer power to make this. So we are in, and I know that folks in the Biden administration know this, we are in a really important moment where there are, it's consolidated enough in a small enough number of hands that now is the time to kind of regulate what it can and can't do before it gets truly on the loose. Yeah, no, I think that I'm, I'm sure that the Chinese government and, uh, <laughs> and Putin and, uh, and Kim Jong Un, you know, they're they're going to stay away from it. Um, all right. Well, uh, one text prompt that lucky for us won't turn out a realistic video yet. Witty political analysis from aging white guys. Uh, is that about that's right? The John podcast? Stewart is back. Oh, John Stewart. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that was my John Stewart. So also, also uh, aging white guy here. Yeah. Uh, so he's hosting the Daily Show every Monday night uh, now through the 2024 election, and people are watching. Max, uh, the, his first show pulled in 930,000 viewers on the first night, three million people over three days. Wow. Uh, and this week's episode featuring our strict scrutiny hosts, mm-hmm. very exciting, mm-hmm. uh, pulled in even more viewers, added viewers from the first week, 1.3 million. Uh, and that was just on the first night. So those the numbers- YouTube have like seven or eight million on which them, is right? even, Yeah, okay. so those numbers not only surpass any ratings from the Trevor Noah era, they rival what? Fox News in primetime, yeah. Maddow, like all the primetime numbers. <laughs> and, and that's with uh, Stewart not just poking fun at favorite targets like Trump and Tucker, but Biden, uh, which has pissed off a, very, uh, a few very online Democrats. Um, <laughs> We're going to get into that. Well, yeah, well, don't worry. Uh, why do you think Stewart is so far succeeding in uh, what even he joked is a dying medium? <laughs> and <laughs> so, in general, what do you think of his return? I, I will answer your question. But first, I have to say, like, it really fucking feels like we're going to be trapped in 2016 for the rest of my life. Yeah, like it's it, like a it's like a real like we're like a Black Mirror episode. It, it, like <laughs> like pulling up the video, like it's great. He's back. He's got the juice. It's so great. But also, it's like I already felt like I was going to be stuck with the same political leaders for my for 20 years for my entire life. That just watch Donald, them get older if, and older. What if Donald Trump lives forever? <laughs> it feels like he's going to. Yeah. It feels like Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and John Stewart are just going to be the, the three faces I have to look at. They're going to be 130 years old. They're going to look like Fu Manchu. <laughs> okay. To answer your question, I, I don't actually think it's a nostalgia play. I think everyone is talking about like, oh, it's nostalgia, bygone era. And I'm sure that there's some of that. But I think what has actually happened is I think that we are once again – for very different reasons in a media and political environment that really calls for someone like Jon Stewart, but not for the same reasons as when it was the George W. Bush era and it felt like the mainstream media doesn't get it. I think that there's just like, I think it's two things. I think there's a universal dissatisfaction with politics right now. Mm -hmm. And he is someone who can kind of give voice to that but without falling into doomerism, mm. which is just like completely saturated. And maybe this is a little bit of a throwback to the Bush era, completely saturated everything about our media. It's just this like intense doomerist vibe that is like, I'm not saying it's unmerited, but it sucks. 
And it's just nice to see someone who can both give voice to like politics across the board feel shitty and bad, but in a way that I have a, like a nice time spending 20 minutes with it. Yeah. Um, he, he says the thing that's on everyone's mind, yeah. but is not being said right. enough or instead in shared spaces right. or media environments mm -hmm. because uh, the right has lost its mind. Right. And I do think there's an argument to be made on MSNBC and on Resistance Twitter mm -hmm. that everyone is understandably so afraid of what's going on right. that it is very like, we got to be on message, talking points. We got to, you know, right. we're, everything, we're very, everything our... is very scary, which yeah. I agree it is. Yeah. And so you don't get the comic relief, mm -hmm. but it's also not the kind of comic relief that you sometimes get in the late night shows, which is still comedy for a, a broader audience. Right. And so there's the traditional jokes and one-liners. What are the safe jokes we right. can make that'll, yeah. Yeah, and, and John doesn't really do that. Mm -hmm. He sort of just talks it through he and it's still right funny, yeah. but he goes right for it. Right. And it is such a departure from what he was doing between the Daily Sh but last time he hosted the Daily Show, <laughs> which is the problem with Jon Stewart, where he right. became like much more of an advocate, mm -hmm. which, which people were like hoping he'd become. Remember right. the last yeah. time he did the Daily Show, it was like, right. Well, he kind of he, he he's he's talking about how bad Bush is. He's talking about how bad Republicans are, but he's just not coming out as a Democrat. He's not yeah. coming out as a liberal or progressive, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And he was much more open about his views and sort of interrogating mm -hmm. uh, people on when he was interviewing people on the problem. And it wasn't as honestly, it wasn't as entertaining. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it just wasn't. It was interesting, mm -hmm. but it wasn't as entertaining. And it was, it's fascinating watching him just slip right back into mm -hmm. the same role he picked up almost exactly where he left off, mm -hmm. aside from him looking older <laughs> and our political environment being even crazier. It is the same. It's the same thing. And that's, mm -hmm. it is, I found it, it's a little like comfort food. <laughs> yeah. It, and I think that also speaks to what makes this a good moment for him, but in like a different set of circumstances where he he can kind of speak directly to things because he is taking this like, I'm making fun of everything tone. And I think that is, he is freed from a lot of the, not just right-left cultural polarization, but the intra-left polarization mm -hmm. where like MSNBC, there's so much pressure where you're either going to cheerlead Biden and champion him, or you're supposed to criticize him from the left. It's like everyone who works in progressive media feels this pressure, like take a position and he can kind of, I don't want to say rise above it by criticizing both sides because I don't think that's exactly what it's it is. It's not rise above it, it's stand apart from it. Exactly. It's stand apart from it. And it's you don't feel like he has to like advocate for one of these culturally polarized positions because he's just like, like you're saying, he's articulating what we're all feeling. He's laughing about it. And it's this release valve for kind of what we're all feeling. And I think that there's very few ways to do that in today's, even especially like among the left progressive media environment. Yeah. And it is, it, it's important to note that we're talking about this, the audience, right? Even mm -hmm. all 3 million, they're, I would bet, uh, and we, you know, you'd see, I'm interested in demographic breakdowns, <laughs> but aging millennials. Sure. Yeah. And who are probably liberal. Yeah. <laughs> That's, so it's still mm -hmm. a, it's still a narrow audience, right? right? Of politically engaged 
or politically curious, right. uh, probably moderate to liberal, right? Like that's still, and, and probably older than last time, right? Because right. because we came of age during the first <laughs> Stuart run The Daily Show. And I I don't, I'm, I, I do wonder how many like Gen Zers are, are tuning into Stuart. Well, what is fascinating to me about that, because I think you're right. I think that he is speaking to the like us audience that it, but like that audience has changed a lot mm-hmm. in the last 10 years. And I would have said before these segments started airing, I would have said it's impossible to speak to that audience in the way that John Stewart used to because the 2016 Democratic primary fractured that audience into mm-hmm. never to be reconnected yep. between a live, whatever you want to call it, like liberals and the left, the center left and the left. But that it just like there's too much cultural polarization between them. You have to take a side if you're speaking to that audience between one or the other. And so he'll never be able to do it. And it seems like he's found a way. Yeah. Although he he did piss off quite a few people by talking about Joe Biden's age. That's true. Including, <laughs> including one Mary Trump. <laughs> this is something I also think that is kind of brilliant about his show is his like, old school cable news beefs that used to work so well, he's porting that to the Twitter era the by same picking thought. up Twitter beefs, but it works perfectly to do it on a show because if, if you tried to do a like Twitter beef but make light of it on Twitter, it would never work because there'd be too many people like jumping on it, mm-hmm. QTing, taking sides. But because he's not actually on Twitter, but just mocking the Twitter beefs, which are ridiculous on their face 100% of the time, it really works. But it also, and it also shows back to that audience we were talking about of like aging millennial Democrats. Mm-hmm. It, it's why so many of them, I think, were angry because yeah. they expected. Right. They, I don't know what they expected <laughs> because like I remember John Stewart criticizing Obama at times when sure. we were in the White House. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that was, that's just what he did. Right. But I think that the, the viewers have changed a little bit and that they're like, well, Trump is an existential threat to democracy. And so we have to be more serious. And so we have to be more careful about who we criticize and if we criticize our own side. Well, and I think this also is like, there has been, and I know this is like a whole can of worms that we don't have to get into, but the like cultural position of how people think about Obama on the left has also changed Mm. so much in the last eight years. Right, which is amazing also because it has changed. And yet, if you look at, any opinion poll? <laughs> it has not. That's true. That's a good point. So it's, right. no, but I'm, it's this very weird disconnect yeah, where the right. the discourse about Obama, the right. online discourse right. on, on the left, is so much different than right. you ask. You throw any poll out in the field of Americans, they're like, "Oh yeah, Obama, <laughs> love, love, love yeah. him, love <laughs> One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Okay, so speaking of you mentioned Biden's age, John, we have a surprise special segment production team. Tee up the music. Favreau's smart, but he's not too bright. John got into a Twitter fight. Incredible. That's the first time I've heard that. and Me too. I thought it rocked. It's the jam of the summer. That is fucking hilarious. So... John is Twitter fighting again. John is canceled again, frankly. (laughs) Okay, so this is the most John Favreau shit I have ever seen. So Ezra Klein, that's right, I know you'll be shocked to hear he's part of this, wrote an essay (laughs) arguing that uh, one Joseph Biden shouldn't run again because his age has become too much of a liability in campaigning. And you posted on Twitter, which is a big mistake. So we're starting off at a loss. I know. Arguing that, Whatever the merits of Ezra's point, that any sort of process to replace Biden would be even riskier than continuing with him. Um, both your points and Ezra's were, I thought, like pretty fine grain analysis on the substance, things like polling and electoral process. So, of course, immediately got interpreted as like the thing you were both straining not to do, which was intra-left culture war, and everyone got very mad at you. So my question is this, John. Why the fuck are you posting to Twitter? Uh, Have you a, learned nothing? Uh, sorry, it's a... It's a fantastic question. Um, <laughs> forgive me offline for I have tweeted. Uh, well, okay. So, so, like, tell us about the yeah. reaction and, like, were you surprised? So, and- here's what happened. So, I, 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 I like Ezra. I read the piece. thought it was fair and well argued. Sure. Didn't necessarily agree with the conclusion. But only because I thought, I, I think he underestimates mm-hmm. the risk of letting activists pick the nominee at a convention in a post Joe Biden world. Right. And... I and so I, I read and I thought I was like you know what I have a podcast. <laughs> uh, I could have said this on the podcast. Uh, it's what I usually do when mm-hmm. I have nuanced takes yeah, about politics that aren't black and white. Right. It was Friday of a long weekend. Uh, okay. Um, I wasn't going to record again until the following Thursday uh, with Dan. I already know what Dan thinks mm-hmm. of of uh, of my take. We've talked about it. And he um, recorded a podcast about it as well, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he, he, he talked to Harry Enton for Polar Coaster. Okay. Sign up. Okay. Crooked.com slash friends. See? Maybe I can skip the housekeeping. <laughs> um, <laughs> Emily and I were also stuck at home with... Charlie had a four-day weekend for some reason. Wow. We're, uh, we're blaming the toddler yes. on this? Oh, yeah. Okay. No, Charlie gets <laughs> And our two-month-old. Don't forget that. So okay. four days at home. Okay. Sure. Uh, stuck at home. And I, I genuinely longed for a thoughtful discussion (laughs) about a topic that is on most voters' minds with smart people who may or may not agree. And you you thought the place to go for this is (laughs) x.com. So I sat down during the kid's nap, and I posted almost exactly, you know, what what you said, what I told you, uh, on the hellhole, formerly known as Twitter, (laughs) and boom. (laughs) And and I'll tell you, after after I hit post, Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? I thought about what I wanted to say. It was a whole thread. Mm-hmm. I feel like I caveated everything in the right way. It's I, I'm happy I did it. I'm happy I did it. Now, people responded a couple different ways. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, there's a bunch of people who simply didn't read and, and, and thought that I completely agreed with Ezra. Really? Just, oh, oh, yeah. Just like basic, <laughs> basic reading comprehension Because issues. you introduced it by saying a nice thing about him. Right, because I introduced it by saying it. Which is funny because Ezra emailed me and he was like, hey, thanks for your thoughtful objections to my, <laughs> to my piece. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so there's that. Then there's people who may or may not have read but came to the conclusion that I'm either an Obama bro who <laughs> is jealous that Biden is a better president than Obama. Wow. Oh, yeah. Is this a thing? Hey, well, it also, it's a thing because it's uh, David Axelrod. Also, uh, people are very mad at him because he's talked about really? the age. And so they think that all of us are like annoyed with Biden, which is uh, absurd. We love, love Joe Biden. Love Wait, Joe Biden. Uh, love famously, Joe Biden as president. famously, Barack Obama picked him as his vice president. I, right, I exactly. Twice. That was the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then there was like, a, I'm an Obama bro who's, you know, privileged and racist and sexist because I didn't in the thread say that I guess if Biden steps aside, then obviously Kamala Harris would be the nominee. Oh, which I like, see. of course she may be. Wow! But instead, the I mentioned I the mentioned K-Hive came for you. Oh, the K Hive came for me <laughs> big time, and it's only because I mentioned Gretchen Whitmer and Raphael Warnock and Josh Shapiro as politicians who are who mm-hmm. have won Democratic politicians who have won in really tough in the toughest swing states and right. are quite popular in those states right. as potentials. I didn't name everyone. I also <laughs> didn't name Gavin Newsom because he wasn't someone who won in a swing state, right? But anyway, who cares? <laughs> the category I want to focus on is people who thought that we shouldn't even be talking about Ezra's piece or mm-hmm. Biden's age because all that's doing is pushing a harmful media narrative that gets reporters clicks and makes Republicans happy and 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 more likely to win. And oh yeah, everyone is a meta media strategist now who well, likes this to is police a real, what you should and should not talk about because how it will be reflected through the media, which it's not how any of that well, works. And this is why I want to talk about this because it's not, forget about who's yelling at me. I don't care. <laughs> I, I really, whatever, whatever. It's the, the biggest divide in politics right now. I've said this a million times on Wilderness, especially on Pod Save America. It's between voters who regularly consume political news mm-hmm. and voters who don't. And the voters who don't regularly consume political news are the majority. And that majority includes nearly every voter who hasn't yet made up their mind about who to vote for mm-hmm. or whether they're voting at all. Mm-hmm. And those voters, they aren't reading the New York Times. <laughs> they don't listen to Ezra. Yeah. They don't listen to us. They don't follow Twitter debates. And if they think that Joe Biden is too old to run for president again, Mm -hmm. it is not because the media or the Republican Party told them. It is because they have eyes and ears. (laughs) And and that doesn't mean that they're not ultimately going to support Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Like, they very well might. I hope to God that they do. But it does mean two things. One, it doesn't fucking matter Mm -hmm. what me or Ezra or Jon Stewart or anyone in our political news junkie world is saying about this. And two, to get them to vote, and this I think is more important, to get them to vote for Joe Biden, we will have to acknowledge their concerns about his age instead of telling them that they are stupid or wrong or being brainwashed by the New York Times or whoever else. And I am a little, and and I, I understand why people feel this way, because I do think that the media environment in 2016 mm-hmm. was different. Sure. And I think that the coverage of Hillary's emails was different and had a different effect on voter opinion mm-hmm. than it would today mm-hmm. or this issue with Joe Biden's age does today. And I think that's the case because back then in 2016, the media, there was more of a 
media monoculture. Mm-hmm. People were consuming, it, it was still pretty splintered back then, but people yeah. were consuming more of the same news. And so if the New York Times had a headline about Hillary's emails, it traveled pretty far and stuff like that. It is just a different environment today. Yeah. And these conversations that we're having on Twitter, like they're just not reaching a bunch of undecided voters who are like, oh my, what? <laughs> Joe Biden is old? Joe Biden? And Ezra Klein is saying he should step aside. Oh, I'm not going to vote for. I, yeah, I'm right. Gonna, I'm, I'm MAGA. I'm Trump. Who are the Who are the undecideds in Michigan who are flipping based on that? Yeah, I, I just right. I don't. And but it, it the reason it worries me is, is not Biden White House can handle themselves, whatever. But like we have to, our job if we want to prevent Donald Trump from becoming president again is to mm-hmm. go find those undecided voters, mm-hmm. again, undecided about who to support or whether they're going to vote at all and talk to them about like how to get them to the polls to vote for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of them, we know this from every single poll that yeah. says like upwards of 80, 80% of people are concerned about his age. They're going to say to us, oh, I don't know, Joe Biden's too old. And what yeah. are you going to say to someone in your life who, who, who has that objection? Are you going to say, fuck you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I yelled at people on Twitter to make them not talk about right. it. No, yeah. you're going to say, yeah. Yeah, I get that. But you know what? Here's what Donald Trump has done as president. Here's mm-hmm. what Joe Biden's done as president. Here's what Trump wants to do. Here's what Biden wants to do. Yeah. And I think Joe Biden's pretty sharp, actually. But like, you're going to make sure. all these arguments, but you're right. going to understand them. Right. And the fact that that the Democrats online or the, like are too afraid to even acknowledge that mm-hmm. is, I think that's going to be a challenge. and It's going to make it harder, not easier for us to win. I think that what feels to me like is actually often going on when people do this kind of... Um, very emotional litigation of like what my favorite media outlets and media personalities should and should not talk about on the (laughs) platforms that I listen to. I think often what that actually reflects is a sense that politics are very scary right now Mm -hmm. and it feels very out of control. 100%. And it feels like there are many ways in which we really struggle to have agency Mm -hmm. over our politics. You know, there's nothing I can do about the fact that, or directly, it feels like there's nothing I can do about the fact that Donald Trump is a crazy fascist and that the Republican Party has taken this hard turn towards authoritarianism. That is really scary. Do you know where I can have agency and can feel like I'm having some effect? I can yell at the media outlets that I have an existing relationship with because they have to listen to me. I can go yell at John Favreau on Twitter. I can yell at the New York Times because I don't like the way that they frame the eighth paragraph of a news story that otherwise supports all of my pre-existing political beliefs and biases because that feels like I can reach these people Mm -hmm. and I can affect them and that will make me feel like I can make some kind of a difference. And I completely get that. I do too. I really get it. Like, a lot, some of the people, you know, the people with a lack of reading comprehension, I don't have a lot of <laughs> <laughs> uh, sympathy for them. But uh, for a lot of other people who are like, don't say this, the headlines yeah. batter this, like, I get, I totally get it. I, yeah. Like, I was, I, I've done that myself, sure. right? I still yeah. do that myself. Like, yeah. because we are all scared. We all should be scared. Right. I, I get that. But I, I think in addition to feeling like you have agency by doing that, mm-hmm. it is also, it is easier work than the yes, work of absolutely. figuring out how to persuade undecided voters. This would happen every time Trump would do something bad, which mm. was quite often, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where you would see so much of the energy on like liberal left-wing Twitter would go towards, we have to yell at Maggie Haberman, who wrote the news article informing about the bad thing that Trump did because we don't like the way that she phrased something in the headline mm-hmm. or whatever, <laughs> because that is the place where we feel like we can direct our energies. And I think a lot of that, honestly— even though I get it, is self-soothing. And I think that's why you see the same, like, what do we do about the fact that Biden is the incumbent and his age is clearly some sort of a campaigning political liability? 
I don't know what I can do about that. Well, I can yell at John Favreau on Twitter for talking about it in a way I don't agree with. And social media makes you feel like uh, it, it makes it makes politics seem easier than mm-hmm. it is. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like oh, yeah. I can I can post and then right. I did it right. and did then it. we're right. good to go. And it feels validating. A lot of people agreed with me, so I must be making an impact. Right. And what I've come to see is like I didn't I did not post that because mm-hmm. I thought I was like having a I was like gonna that's gonna help Joe Biden get elected or help do the work. That's like right. aside from the work <laughs> that I know that we need to do that I want to help do as well to get right. him elected. Right. That's like hey we're still on the stage and this group of people, this mm-hmm. highly engaged group of people who are going to be the volunteers that go out there, mm-hmm. we're still at the stage where we got to talk amongst each other and figure out the best messages and the best strategy to right. go out there and persuade voters. Right. So we're sort of having a conversation here. Mm-hmm. And in that conversation, we kind of need to be pretty honest, right. with, at least with each other. Because right. well, <laughs> all, all the people that were posting, all the people that were replying to me, they're all Biden. They're either Biden <laughs> voters or they maybe there are a few Trump voters. There's no one. Just no undecided right, yeah, people right, were posting. Right, right. No undecided people. Well, I promise you. So I know you said you didn't want to talk about like who happens to be yelling at you, but there there is actually an element of this that I did really want to ask you about. Sure. Because we kind of live in this era mm-hmm. when there is enormous pressure from audiences for everyone we follow or like to very loudly advocate the like quote-unquote correct position on every issue we care about and to be like an avatar of whatever cultural, political tribe we identify with. And this is something that we always really struggled with when I was at the New York Times because we had to report something that we knew would make some segment of the audience upset because it didn't quite affirm with or align their priors, their preferred worldview. We'd have to like really think about how to frame that. You see it with like people getting mad at Taylor Swift for not taking a position on Gaza, like the enormous pressure that we put on our cultural avatars. Yeah. And this has been on my mind with Jon Stewart coming back and like trying to please an audience of Democrats that since the golden era of 15 years ago have split pretty sharply. We were talking about between the liberal, the left-wing camp, and, you know, like the Pod Save America audience. Like the audience has had its own journey in mm-hmm. the years since you all launched the show. And I feel like the Biden age question is maybe putting pressure on the ways that that audience has changed or evolved or divides within that audience. So I guess my question is like, how do you kind of think about navigating those cross-cutting pressures from the audience when things like Biden's age are such a like hot button issue for it? Yeah, it's a great question and one that... Uh keeps me up at night and tweeting all the time. Uh, when this is going to be uh, very unsurprising, the way that I'm going to start this, when we when we were working with Obama. <laughs> did you did you work with Barack Obama? Ah, I didn't know that. Sorry, everyone. I'm sorry. No, but he sometimes when like a speech wasn't great, he would just be like, okay, let's just put all the rhetoric aside. Like, let's start with what is actually true, whether we mm. can say it or not. Like, what sure. is true? Yeah. And so I, I have been thinking about that. Like, what is what is true? Mm-hmm. Joe Biden is old. Yeah. He and he looks and sounds older than he did even in 2020. Yeah. So some a couple of people are like, no, he doesn't. I'm like, okay, if you don't want to believe that, that's fine. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Great. Good for you. God bless you. God bless you. <laughs> I wish. Yeah. Right. But um, I I think he looks and sounds older. Right. Do I think he is a uh, a better choice than Donald Trump? Yeah. yeah. Obviously. Mo- sure. uh, hopefully, most people do. Is it true that there's a bunch of people? who don't necessarily know if he's a better choice than Donald, than Donald Trump? Yes. Mm-hmm. And the other problem I'm having is that, like, how many, I don't know how many polls keep coming out and ever, and then, like, the reaction to the polls from some Democrats is either, like, don't worry about those, those polls are wrong, it's too early, blah, blah, blah. and it's like, we could also say, mm-hmm. maybe the polls are wrong, but maybe they're right. And if they're right, 
we need to figure out Mm -hmm. how to address the concerns that voters have Mm -hmm. so that we can win this election. And if I'm going to make a case about Joe Biden to people, Mm -hmm. again, I'm going to start with what is true. Is that like, well, I'm lucky enough that I've had personal experience with him and I can say, I think he's still sharp. Mm -hmm. I think that... all the things he's done so far, he's been a great. He's been an even better president than I expected. Sure. There are places where I disagree with him. I disagree yeah. a, a very much so on the Gaza policy. Yeah, me too. And but then even if I play that out, mm-hmm. right? It's like I I want everyone to continue to pressure him to change course on Gaza. Mm-hmm. There is not another option of any mm-hmm. candidate right now sure. that is going to win this race. Mm-hmm. That is going to have a better policy on Gaza. Than Joe Biden. It's just the case. There's yeah. third party candidates aren't going to win, mm-hmm. and Donald Trump's going to be worse. And that's not to say, fuck you if you have a concern about Gaza, because sure. I don't think of that course. is helpful either. But it is laying out the honest stakes of the election. Right. And also, <laughs> if you have a problem with the Zayd, you have a problem with Gaza, like we have to understand that, and we just did uh, the Pods of America that Dan and I recorded this week was very dark and scary because we talked about um, the Christian nationalist agenda that mm-hmm. is could seep into Donald Trump's White House, the IVF issue that's happening in Alabama, the deportation mm-hmm. uh, plans that Trump and Stephen Miller have. And the reason we're talking about that is because those are very real consequences of a Trump term right. that we're not just painting a dystopian future. They could actually happen. Here's how they can happen. And I want to give people that information mm-hmm. so that then they can make a decision mm-hmm. having all the good information. Maybe I don't like Joe Biden. Maybe I'm upset with him, but I know this is what's going to happen. I know this is a choice. Mm-hmm. And then let people make their own decision. Right. Because I do think I do think at the end of the day, you can advocate you can give people good information, but you mm-hmm. have to let people make the choice themselves because right. if we scold people mm-hmm. and if we yell at them, it is not going to work. It's not going to be effective because think about your own life. It's not effective when someone scolds you. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's just human right. nature. Right. And so like I, I just – I keep going back to the, the, uh, the persuasion and how to how to achieve effective persuasion. And the best way I know how is to to first tell the truth and address people's concerns as mm-hmm. they are, and then push them somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. You meet people where they are, but you don't leave them there is basically what I right. what I my thought on them. Do the you feel like it's getting harder to kind of um meet the audience where it is? Because like I hear you talking about like you know, having to acknowledge the age thing, having to acknowledge like our criticisms of his position on Gaza in Israel. And I feel like part of what I'm hearing, I'm not saying this is a bad thing at all, is that maybe there is more pressure from the audience or more of a dissatisfaction from the audience with Biden that kind of gets pushed onto us. Yeah, there's there's some of that. I mean, in in some ways that's been the case since we started, right? Like there was, it was the... It was the Bernie Bros in sixteen, right. and then again in in uh, in eighteen and twenty, and that mm-hmm. faction of the party. So there's been them. There's been. I mean, it's just been all over the place, right? right. The the, the K Hive, still <laughs> mad at Love It <laughs> for something I can't remember. So this is this has been the case. Mm-hmm. I will say that um, as as much as we're joking about the Twitter fight, mm-hmm. I have realized. And I've realized this because we do live events and we meet people and we go do campaign stuff and we mm-hmm. knock on doors and we talk to organizers. And those people also disagree with us at times, right? Sure. 
but yeah. it's just always more in, like constructive talking to them yeah. <laughs> and they get yeah. it. So, and so like, I, I do, I know that the group of people who are hardcore online posters do not represent most of the people. And to that point, I sat down Monday night after just four days of pure punishment <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to do something else. And then I was like, I wonder if I should, I should check the crooked discord. I should check the friends of the pod discord. I'm like, why are you doing that to yourself? You just, you stop Twitter. Don't, and we, I, of course we love I, friends of the pod. Well, because I have no willpower. I checked it. Okay. And it was lovely. Everyone sure, was like, very who let John tweet again? Why didn't they take away his <laughs> they're, phone? They're right. And yeah. everyone was like, and I was like, you know what? These are, the, that's actually the audience right. that not the only audience I care about, but those I, I, it's my hope, and I think it's true, that a lot of people in those audience will be the volunteers. They'll be knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. be, and again, my only like my only goal here is mm -hmm. to arm people with information and hopefully effective messaging that can help them persuade undecided voters to vote right. for Joe Biden. Right. That's it. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking a lot about this because, again, I really want to stress that the idea of pressure from the audience, I do not think that's a bad thing. I think that that is mm -hmm. a really important part of being in the media, is speaking to your audience, hearing back from them. Yeah. It's an important part of knowing if you're doing a good job or not. Tell us we're wrong. Tell us why. Well. Tell yeah. us we're being stupid. Right. Yeah, right. For sure. The one thing that, and this has been true of every outlet I've ever worked at, that is really hard is sometimes you do feel trapped by the assumptions that people bring to how they read your coverage or listen to your coverage based on just who you are and how they believe your position in the culture. Like to give you an example, um, I wrote a lot about Israeli-Palestinian conflict before I went to the Times. And I always took a position that, I don't like to say pro-Palestinian because that's very narrow, but mm. like was very critical of the occupation, was very critical of Israel. And as soon as I was started writing the exact same things at the New York Times, all of the people who had been following me, agreeing with me, suddenly just assumed that I was a pro-Israel shill because that was their assumption of uh. what the New York Times does, which I think used to be true, but has not actually been true for a long time, but that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah, But it was really constricting because you would feel like you were constantly trying to prove to the audience like, no, no, I, I get it. I see the conflict. I understand what's happening. And I'm pushing things in the direction that you and I want them to be pushed. Mm. But you never feel like you're able to prove it because people bring so many assumptions to you and to your coverage because of who you are. And it makes me curious about like you thinking about how to tackle the Biden age thing because that is such a fissure point and a conflict point within what I think of as the kind of crooked media pod save America audience. I don't know if this answers the question, but this is, this is what's been on my mind a lot is mm -hmm. the one thing that has changed about me since I since we started Crooked and Pod Save America is I am much less concerned about um, personally being attacked or criticized. Mm -hmm. and, As evidenced by the fact that you tweet ever. <laughs> <laughs> right. But like, to the extent that I have all of these frustrations and am posting and I'm yelling about all that kind of stuff, it, it, it used to be because I was like, don't attack me. I don't like all this criticism. Sure. And also, yeah. I don't want to be canceled and the whole thing could come <laughs> crashing. You know, like, yeah. I, I actually right, right. care a lot less about that. I think I, it's I really, less like, true than it used to be. Yeah, I think well, getting it's, yelled it's, at at Twitter does not have the same consequences it used to. It does, but also I'm just like, I've come, I'm like, life's too short, sure. and I'm going to say what I believe, and if yeah. it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. But what gets me frustrated is it's the it's the activist and organizer in me more so than the media personality, if right. you will. Because right. I'm like, I just, I want us to win, and I want people to do what is 
like I want effective messaging and effective right. organizing, right. and I want to do whatever I can to help that. And if I'm wrong about it, then then great, someone prove me wrong and do something better. That's totally fine. But like I just I want people to like. I want people to look at the at the data mm-hmm. and under and listen to other people because the data in politics is just listening to other people right. who are the ones who are going to vote right. and the people who dismiss like a focus group or a poll or anything like that. I'm like, th- this is democracy. Three hundred million people in this country. We're the ones who are going to vote. We can't. We there's no other people that are going to save us. It's right. just us. Yeah. We have to figure out a way to do this together, yeah. and we have to figure a way to actually persuade our fellow Americans. And like that's it. At the bottom of everything, that is it. Yeah. And when that, when I feel like that's not happening, that's when I get super frustrated. But it's it's less about me now. Yeah. Well, hopefully that signaling that commitment to the kind of broader, deeper ideals of you know honest inquiry of the truth and long term kind of you know political good. That is something that will I, I think the audience wants above and beyond whether or not you reach the quote unquote correct conclusion that they yeah. want to hear at yeah. the time. Moral of the story, a lot more Twitter fights for me <laughs> in 2024. I can't wait. <laughs> Fiverr texted me as this was going on and he was like, uh, I remember our New Year's resolution episode and I didn't think your resolution was to become the main character on Twitter every couple of weeks. <laughs> I'm going to start actually calling in COVID scares to Charlie's daycare <laughs> just so that we can get get more of these segments because I, I don't know. I, uh, let us know if you think this is interesting. I think this stuff is fascinating because I think that it is so important how the way that media outlets and their audience relate to one another is so changing, too. I think really matters. Yeah. And and let us know what you think. Yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> but only if you... Uh, only if you agree with us. Yeah, tweet at me. Tweet at me. <laughs> tweet, tweet at something really nice. Tweet at, tweet at John and John alone. Uh, all right. Before the break, as you probably know by now, love it. Tommy and I wrote a book called Democracy or Else, How to Save America in 10 Easy Steps. Uh, we're only four months away from you all having a copy of the book in your hand. But maybe the lure of a reasonable page count loaded with illustrations isn't your thing. Uh, we've got you covered there, too. We are all about to hunker down for what is uh, going to be a, let's be honest, tedious eight hours we will never get back uh, to bring you Democracy or Else as an audiobook. That's right, Max. Come on, it's going to be I'm gonna, great. I know, but like recording an audiobook, everyone who's written a book, have you? did you record your audiobook? No, they got a, a, a pro to do it yeah, who well. um, added some weird accents okay, to cool. big stretches of it that did not require that. Well, so We're, just, that's, we're, that's we're doing it ourselves soon okay. enough. Okay. Uh, but anyway, it's perfect for the avid listener who loves the pod but just wishes it could be four hours longer. <laughs> Head to crooked.com <laughs> slash books and pre-order now. Uh, And if you're looking for a more civilized Twitter-free discussion on Biden's age and physical fitness, check out the latest episode of Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer. See, I told you. Uh, Dan talks with Harry Enten, host of CNN's Margin of Error, about the increasingly infamous Ezra Klein piece. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. (laughs) And what voters are saying about the two old men running for president. Sign up for access to Polar Coaster and other great exclusive pods at crooked.com slash friends. Okay, John, and I am so excited to announce my new podcast series, with Aaron Ryan. It's called How We Got Here, and it airs on the feed for What a Day. Every Saturday, Aaron and I explore a big question behind the week's headlines and tell a story that answers that question. This week, we tell the weird and fascinating story of a newly rising movement on the right called Christian nationalism, where it comes from, and how it is taking over the GOP. How We Got Here with Aaron Ryan. It airs every Saturday on the feed for What a Day. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, after the break, my conversation with Tina Wen about what Tucker Carlson was like before Fox News and how she escaped the right-wing cult. 
can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Tina Wen, welcome to Offline. Thank you so much for having me. So I've always been fascinated with the world of right-wing media, which you know very well. Uh, I'm especially interested in sort of the life experiences that shape people's political views. Uh, you grew up in Massachusetts, like me. You went to Milton. Uh, know a few of those alumni. Started this company with one. Uh, in the book, you describe your high school, college self as a libertarian. Like, how did you develop your political beliefs? What drew you to libertarianism? It was sort of around the time where a whole bunch of of political moments happened at once. And when you're in high school, uh, it sort of lands in a more like undeveloped, instinctive, emotional way. So not getting into various colleges, which is really kind of devastating when you go to a fancy prep school of that caliber, along with oh no, Obama's coming into office. What is he about to do with all of our tax dollars? Oh no, there's a huge financial crisis. Oh no, we also hate the war in Iraq. What on earth do I do? How do I, exa- how do I go about this way in the world? Wait, the Ron Paul moment's happening over there. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that like everyone could be motivated by rational self-interest to create a perfect society and you didn't need someone at the top telling you what to do and it would be based purely on merit and ability rather than credentials, race, whatever. Uh, when you're 17 and didn't get into a good college as you know that level of society deems a good college, you're like, yeah, this, is, um, this sounds right. I'm going to go this way. That's funny. I didn't, I didn't get into any Ivy League schools um, and so I ended up at Holy Cross, which, you know, I was like, fuck those people at <laughs> schools. <laughs> but I also went to it and I, you know, Holy Cross actually had, I had a lot of conservative professors in the political science department, the student body, there were some more conservative students. So it was actually in college that I sort of learned to debate politically. And I was mm-hmm. like, I appreciated that I had other perspectives that weren't mine because I realized at the time that I was liberal, but you ended up at Claremont McKenna, which is out here east of L.A. Uh, it, it is a more conservative school. You start meeting some people who are influential in the conservative movement. This is around 2008, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. And you've likened your early experiences to uh, right-wing summer camp. What's, what's right-wing summer camp like? 
<laughs> oh boy. So one of the things I go deep into in the MAGA diaries is the college activism recruiting pipeline. And this is something the left absolutely does not have. And whenever I describe it to people outside of conservative world, they're like, what the hell? This is insane. But over the past several decades, conservative activists starting from like Barry Goldwater through Reagan to now have been throwing hundreds of millions of dollars into identifying young students at the college level who they think will be good conservative chess pieces in their attempt to reshape the federal government, state government, whatever. So um, you'll have really young kids who want to go into philosophy and academia. There's a program for that. You go to right wing summer camp for philosophy. Uh, you want to go into law school, maybe become a like a lawyer or a judge. There's right wing summer camp for young lawyers. And uh, in my case, I wanted to be a journalist. And at that point, the Koch brothers and a whole bunch of other um, conservative donors were like, we should have journalists who are libertarian and conservative. So we're going to send out all of these applications uh, into the ether for, quote unquote, liberty minded students who want a career in journalism. Also, it's paid and it's 2009 and no newsrooms are offering paid internships. And of course, this lands in my email inbox and I go, "Whoo, this sounds great. So I apply for it. I get the internship and the thing that I have to do in order to get the internship is literally go to a week-long camp at Bryn Mawr for libertarian journalists. And they will all be – and like literally you just sat in classes with all these people who were like, hey, isn't it weird that the mainstream media doesn't actually want to question uh, why it is that – the Affordable Care Act is possibly unpopular with a large section of the country. You know, someone should write about that in journalism. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, and that part is obviously kind of terrifying. But the thing that really makes the movement gel is having all of those kids there for a week, hanging out with each other, building bonds and relationships and like, you know, smoking cigarettes outside of the dorm at night which I think is more of a psychological glue for this movement than just having the camp itself. Yeah, so we have nothing like that on the left. Uh, and, I, and I imagine that conservatives think, well, a lot of academic institutions uh, lean left anyway. A lot of professors are liberals or leftists. And a lot of media organizations are biased and, and, and seem mm -hmm. to be staffed with journalists who, even if they don't say it, are, are Democrats or liberal-minded. But I think the big difference is, like, there is no concerted organizational effort on the left to sort of recruit young people into the movement and to sort of, like, place them in media organizations and think tanks and places in government that are, like, explicitly liberal or for partisan purposes, at least. Oh, for sure. Uh, academia and journalism do exist in a world where they're like, yeah, these are explicitly what we're going after. It just so happens that our like community is liberal. You enter conservatism as someone who believes in a certain thing and then find a career path in order to push that thing forward. Um, and the thing that you mentioned about 
placement is so ingrained into being a conservative and being a professional conservative, particularly like I'll be having conversations with high powered uh, Republicans in positions of great influence. And they will just be saying things like, I have these young people that I've been mentoring, but I have no idea where to place them. And just the idea that like people you work with can be moved around like game pieces is just like, when the first time I heard that, I was just, it kind of made everything click for me. Yeah, I mean, I've interviewed a few people on the show about how a lot of these right-wing spaces, especially online, can offer some pretty lonely people, often young men, a sense of community. And I thought about that when I read your book because you write a lot about the sense of community and close friendship that you experienced and how that leads to, I think you use the term organic loyalty um, in the movement. And I don't know that um, liberals or other people who aren't in the conservative movement necessarily get that part when they wonder like, well, then why didn't they just speak up or why didn't they turn? Because it's the sense of community and friendship that seems to really gel at a young age. Oh, for sure. Like if I had stayed in that movement, I probably would feel like it would have been my friend group. It would have been my professional circles. It would be like everyone I hung out with after work and losing that sense of like stability and community is so hard for people because like those are built explicitly on ideological ties too. And the moment that you go, wait, actually, I don't think what we're all doing is okay. I'm not, I'm not down with this. The backlash is so intense that I've, that, and like, I've just never seen that anywhere else. Um, I did end up leaving conservative media and hopping over to the mainstream and watching Trumpism and this like split within the Republican Party happen from outside of that world, I think gave me a better viewpoint into watching these like social bonds fracture. Um, weirdly enough, I do always feel this weird sense of disloyalty whenever I report on the movement too, because I'm like, look, like people in this movement were kind to me. I remember having like fun ass drinks with them. I like they did me a lot of professional favors. Tucker Carlson literally gave me his personal phone number so my mom could call him if she was worried about me. <laughs> and now it's like, oh my God, you are powerful and I am reporting on you. And like, I can't forget that these, that you were like, a person in my community once. This is weird, but I got to do it. Yeah, I was going to say, can you talk about why you left? Because you, you left conservative media before it became MAGA. Um, and is it like, how much was your political beliefs changing? How much was the conservative media political beliefs changing? How much was it just other factors that caused you to leave? Like what, what, what finally made you realize, like, I got to get out of here? It was a combination of a lot of things. I don't think there was one particular moment where I was like, it is this factor, I'm leaving. Uh, it was just like a culmination of things. So the first moment was when I started realizing that even though I wanted to enter the world of journalism, the caveats that being in this movement placed on me were like completely antithetical to being a journalist at all. Like my editors would be asking me to write things with a certain angle, even though I'm like, that's not 
true or relevant to what's happening right now? Uh, why is it that you want to attack the Democrat? And they're like, oh, it's because the media always attacks the Republicans. So someone's going to attack the Democrat. And like, but the, the Republican and the Democrat are doing the same thing. Like, this is hypocritical. And two, I started realizing that the network that had given me all of these opportunities were pushing me further and further into being a hack. And these were people that I had trusted with my like growth and career. And the idea that they were trying to use me was just awful. And and I this and the third one about like what it is that I believe politically has always been something I'm asked a lot. And I honestly think it's because I always approached right-wing stuff academically Mm. rather than having it be a part of the community I grew up in. Like my parents were Vietnamese refugees who were Buddhist and we sort of crash landed in America after the war and tried to make our way up. But I just never had the context of say Christianity being the cornerstone of my identity, family, whatever. I was just like, huh, you know, San Augustine's kind of interesting. I'm going to take some notes on that. (laughs) So not having that attached to my own personal growth and beliefs, I think just made me realize, oh, wait a second. I can't just be sort of like frivolous when it comes to changing the world like this. Yeah. Uh, So I want to talk about like the difference between conservative media and now progressive media. I run a progressive media company. We are very open about our political views. We actually do political organizing. But we we really try to give people factual, reliable information. And if we make mistakes, which we often do, we try to correct them. And I more even more importantly, I think, I always say to the staff that we started Crooked to be a place where like all parts of the anti-Trump coalition should feel welcome. Democratic socialists to never Trumpers, you know? And we some we criticize Democrats when we think they're wrong. It feels like conservative media is a lot more homogeneous in its views and, and single-minded in its goals. And then also is sometimes not as open about what it's trying to do <laughs> as a way to kind of like, you know, sort of coax people into it. Uh, do you think that's right? Am I, am I close? Or how would you characterize it? I think that conservative media literally lives in an alternate parallel universe of mm. facts and logic and like base beliefs about how the world works and how society works than mainstream media or Democrats do. Um, Half of my job literally is trying to explain a mindset, uh, like the MAGA mindset to everyone else because they're like, this is insane. No one could possibly believe that. And I'm like, all right, let me go way, way, way back into the origin of conservative movement media. (laughs) And if you start investing in having conservative journalists who interpret facts in a conservative manner and start in like advocating for a result that just does not match what the Democrat slash mainstream does, then it's completely logical and factual and right over in right wing universe world. So I think one of the best examples of that was when I first started reporting on MAGA stuff back in 2017, Right around the time that James Comey had gone in front of Congress and said, here's what here's Trump trying to um, pressure me. This is horrible. I was asked, all right, go figure out what it is that conservatives think about this stuff. 
And I swear to God, the first thing that a source of mine uh, told me, and like this woman was super smart, a law school, Ivy League degree. And she went, oh, that's an issue? I thought the Seth Rich thing was more important. <laughs> and and the moment, and I just started thinking, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This, they've been like harping on Seth Rich for almost a year at this point. That's the only thing that's been playing on Fox and Breitbart and all of these right-wing media outlets. Of course, they're going to think that Seth Rich um, outweighs uh, James Comey. Because, and then she genuinely believed that. It wasn't just like she was yeah. peddling the bullshit. Um, no, no, no. She genuinely believed that. So I'm interested about the transformation in the conservative movement um, that, you know, you have had a front row seat to. You came of age when it was about free markets, tax cuts, small government, access of evil, Koch brothers, Tea Party. That's now represented by, you know, Nikki Haley and maybe her 30 percent of the vote <laughs> that she's getting in the primary. Everything else is right wing MAGA populism. What do you think drove that transformation? And did it make sense to you? Like, I'm always wondering Ooh. if if the seeds were always there in the conservative movement to become MAGA and to have a lot of these sort of authoritarian tendencies we're seeing from Trump and others, or was it a real departure? Ooh, man. Uh, so do you mind if I go way, way back to the 60s for a little bit? Please because do. This is a, Please do. This is a uh, theory I've been developing that I call the infinite fringe. Mm. So what I always asked in the early Trump administration was like, oh God, there's populism happening, but here's what the conservative movement that I knew would say in response to that. Why is it that we're not seeing a moment that happened back in the 60s? Uh, so William F. Buckley was the editor-in-chief of National Review, very buttoned up, very proper intellectual paper. But the mo conservative movement, as it was at the time, was being taken over by this group called the John Birch Society, which, uh, to put it bluntly, is basically 1960s QAnon. Like, they believe that every government agent was a secret communist and that communism was an Illuminati plot, like that kind of wacko. Yeah. But the entire time, Buckley was like, okay, we can't have these guys in our movement. They are going to uh, poison our image to the rest of the public, I am going to devote a lot of ink to getting these guys out. So he had a lot of, he wrote so many columns calling them psychos. He talked to congressmen, uh, governors, Reagan, being like, we like got away from the Birchers. These guys are nuts. And eventually the Birchers just lost a lot of influence and they kind of disappeared into the woods with ham radios and pamphlets. Um, and I was wondering whether that moment would be replicated during the time of Trump, but that just did not happen because what would happen instead was that these conservative media institutions like Fox and National Review would be like, no, this is not conservative. We're going to kick out these people. But then those people would go somewhere else on the Internet and they'd make their own site and they'd be like, no, the right is trying to cancel our point of view. Come over here. We're building our audience and maintaining our influence. Um, and even in those worlds, if someone was too crazy and they'd get kicked out, they would go somewhere else on the internet and build this um, community again. Someone would get kicked out there. They'd go further on and on and on and on. So there's just no gatekeepers to what's considered conservatism anymore. And the people who I knew in the conservative media growing up definitely had those crazy beliefs, but there would be more powerful people who'd say, we don't like you, 
you're done, you're quiet, go away. But that just doesn't happen anymore. And it's the lack of gatekeepers, I think, is revealing this boiling populism that was always in the conservative movement that just people who were deeply involved in it never wanted to acknowledge. Well, and it seems like a huge explanation for that is the what the internet and social media have done to politics, the media, the fact that the media is more atomized than ever before. And uh, if anyone can sort of build their own following and not have to rely on an institution like Fox News or the Weekly Standard to give them a career um, or or have to worry about them firing them, <laughs> mm-hmm. then they can sort of say whatever they want. And whether it's genuine beliefs or whether they're just saying it to get clicks and attention, uh, you know, the, the effect is the same. Oh, man. Yeah, there's a there's a joke that goes around conservative world of like how the Fox bookers were the most powerful people in conservative media. Yeah. Yeah. Not anymore. Well, speaking of transformations, I want to talk about Tucker. You you were you worked for Tucker at The Daily Caller. And it's so funny. You, you were writing about The Daily Caller. And I remember when The Daily Caller started and I remember they were like, we're not going to be conspiracy theories and this and that. We're going to be conservative or we're going to be factual. And then, of course, it just went went nuts. But what, what's your explanation on Tucker, on, on like what has happened to Tucker? Because I, I know people in D.C. who've known him in D.C. I remember him on CNN and MSNBC. And he was he always seemed like a jerk on TV, but he was like a your traditional conservative. And now he is this, you know, uh, right wing MAGA populist conspiracy theorist embracing replacement theory, all that. I know in the book you you wrote that like part of this explanation was he moved to Maine from DC and he got out of DC. I got, I, it's hard to believe that that's it. (laughs) That's the only explanation. Mm. So what do you think happened to him? The first time I ever met Tucker when I was 22, our first conversation was literally, let me tell you about the time that your high school headmaster offended me back when we were both in high school. And he was just so adamant about telling me how much he hated this guy. (laughs) And I thought it was really funny. But like every time I've, talk to Tucker, there's always this sense of like, let me tell you about someone I really, really, really hate. And that sense of resentment, I think, drives a lot of what he does. Mm. And he does tend to go to like really extreme bridge burny uh, lengths when someone goes against what he believes or worse, insults him. And when I reached out to him for the book back in 2022, um, this was before he left Fox. I wanted to talk to him about whether he believed that conservative media still existed. And part of that line of inquiry was, all right, what what are you reading these days? How do you get your news? Um, And he told me that he literally just stopped reading the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and all of the mainstream publications altogether because he just didn't trust them anymore. And he thought they were elitist institutions and just hated them and and talked for a long time about why they sucked. Uh, But then he also mentioned that he got all of his news from his friends. They would just text him um, what they'd read and he would read it and be like, oh, my God, that's so interesting. And when you cut down your friend group and expel everyone that you think has wronged you and you stop reading newspapers because you think they're awful and you just rely on a group of people who are reflecting your worldview so deeply and over and over and over again, like it makes absolute sense that he now 
exists in a world where he didn't realize how Vladimir Putin was going to treat him during that interview he recently did. Like, if he had taken into account, like, years and years of Russian scholar of scholarship on Russian politics, he probably would have known, okay, Putin really just loves to sit there and drone at people about um, Russian history, and he'll just, like, try to kick your ass the entire time. And Tucker just went in there not knowing what was about to happen and just got his, like, I was talking to my colleague, Julia Ioffe, who's a Russia expert, and she was just like, yeah, this was so obvious. But do you, do you think he, knew, like, did he not expect it? Or does he believe in sort of the agenda that he's pushing on his show so much that he was going to fit the facts of the interview and what he saw in Russia to his worldview. Because when I'm, you know, John Stewart did the funny segment on on Tucker in the grocery store uh, or in the in the airport, right? And he and he's ta- he's talking about like how beautiful things are, and he's like, and you know, the, it's it, inflation is so bad in the United States, and things are so cheap here, blah blah blah. It's like. Well, come on, man. Like, you know that the reason things are cheap is because people aren't making much money at all and they're still spending a lot of their income on their groceries. Mm. And there's not a lot of people are enjoying living in Russia right now. (laughs) Like, you know that. He's smart enough to know that. So I'm just wondering, like, I always wonder with him how much is how much is him pushing an agenda that he deeply believes, even though he knows it's bullshit? And how much is it just his brain has been pickled by his information environment? Mm. I would say like 80% of the latter and then 20% of him, like, I have to believe this is true. Otherwise, everything I believe is going to collapse around me. So I'm Mm -hmm. just going to like force the facts into this mold. Um, Like there's an incentive for him to not collapse and admit that he was wrong at this point. Like it goes against everything that he's been building for himself ever since he got kicked out of Fox. Um, He's got a company that he's trying to launch now. He's got this massive revenge plan to like take down Fox and the Daily Wire and all of these other corporations that are like offending him personally for whatever reason or another. And (laughs) if you say, hey, maybe I'm totally wrong and the basis of what I'm doing might not be factually accurate, then you lose your audience too. Yeah. I, it's funny, like reading your book, I started thinking, and I've had this sort of theory about MAGA conservatism for a while, which is it's sort of a combination of people who are feel individually aggrieved uh, and resentful because of something that happened in their life or they got canceled or they got fired or a, a, a significant other dumped them for some reason or a friend group kicked them out, whatever. They have some kind of grievance and resentment. And then when they find this community of other people who are also uh, resentful and have a lot of grievance, then they get stuck in that information environment <laughs> because now mm-hmm. you can do that with the internet and social media and it just keeps going and going and going. And all of these political theories and ideologies, stuff like that, it really just comes down to a bunch of really aggrieved people who found community. And it does seem like some of the characters in your book that you came across fit that description. But last question to you, what do you think about that? No, I think that's fairly accurate. Um, no one's been able to ever articulate a smart version of what 
MAGA actually is. They're border conservatives. They're fiscal conservatives. There are people who are like, I would like the government to look this way. And so this is what I'm going to do with the government. Uh, the problem with Trump, though, is that he has no coherent ideology and he taps into that deeply like emotional part of people who feel like they've been screwed over for one reason or another. And I don't know if that is a governing coalition eventually. Um, but one of the things I cover right now for Puck is the dysfunction in the House GOP. Mm. And if you talk to any single one of those people, they would all be like, yeah, of course, I'm supporting President Trump no matter what he does. And then they're all trying to tear each other's faces off. Like the, like the Jim Jordan Tea Party Republicans are against the MAGA Republicans, even though those guys feel like they should be like united like this. Everyone hates Mike Johnson, even though he literally wrote the brief that said Trump should still be president and he's super duper Christian nationalist. Um, the New York Republicans are probably like, yeah, you know what? I like Trump too, but I want to get reelected. And now that we have such a slim majority, we can impose our agenda onto literally everyone else. And it's an ideological bloodbath that really has no relationship to what Trump actually wants. And honestly, if you want to see a preview of what the MAGA movement post-Trump would look like, it would kind of look like that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it does seem like what he wants is revenge on his political enemies, which does seem to be the only thing left in the Republican Party and that like people do people may have policy preferences. They may be border conservatives, fiscal conservatives, but all policy preferences are subsumed to we just want revenge on our political enemies. That seems like that's the only thing that's holding them all together. You would not be wrong on that. Um. <laughs> yeah. So, well, well uh, Tina, it was a, a fascinating book. And um, thank you so much for uh, for joining offline and uh and uh, we'll uh, keep reading your uh, your stuff at Puck with interest. So uh, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Take care. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau, along with Max Fisher. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos provide audio support to the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Madeline Herringer, Reed Cherlin, and Andy Taft for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Delon Villanueva, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. There's a lot going on in 2024. Luckily, there's someone to help us sort through the latest happenings and give us a laugh while doing it. John Stewart, yes, another John, returns to the host chair on The Daily Show to share satirical takes on news, pop culture, and politics. Hear daily episodes fine-tuned for your ears, along with the biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.